Hello, and welcome to Student Centricity, Trellis Company's podcast for higher ed professionals. I'm your host, Nick Nielsen. In this podcast, we'll cover topics related to higher education and the factors that impact student success. In this first episode, we're joined by Trellis's senior research analyst, Carla Fletcher, lead author the 2021 State of Student Aid in Higher Education in Texas Annual Report, also known as the SOSA. The SOSA serves as a key resource guide for college and college readiness statistics across Texas's seven regions. We hope you find this interview with Carla insightful as she discusses some of the findings in this year's report. Thanks for joining us today, Carla. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So today we'll be discussing some of the notable takeaways and highlights from the 2021 SOSA report with Carla. To get started, can you tell us a little bit more about the SOSA and what type of topics are covered? Absolutely. Uh, So the SOSA is an annual report. Um, Trellis, or formerly TG, has been publishing the SOSA for about two decades. Uh, I've been at Trellis for 15 years, and it was already a standard publication when I started. So it's a reference publication. So it's not like a typical report that Trellis usually publishes. Um, The SOSA is a collection of data about a variety of topics related to higher education, things like demographics, pre-college, college college costs and attainment, student financial wellness, consumer debt, and student aid policy. SOSA generally focuses on the financial aspects of access and success in higher education. It also focuses on Texas as much as possible. There are comparisons to the nation or other states where possible, and sometimes the information is national only. It just depends on the data sources available but we try to keep the focus on Texas. Wow. It sounds like the SOSA offers a lot of valuable data-driven information. Is there anything else you like about the SOSA? I really like the layout of the SOSA. It makes it pretty easy to navigate and find what you're looking for. Each page stands on its own, so there's no need to have to read a whole section or series of pages to get what you need. Each page has a headline describing the topic and some sort of graphic a bit of descriptive text, and then sources at the bottom of the page. And you can go straight to the table of contents and read the section themes and the page headers in each section, and then just go straight to the page or pages that you're interested in. So it makes it really easy. And who is the intended audience for the SOSA? Um, Our intended audience is policymakers and anyone looking for particular data points about topics related to higher education affordability. So this could range from state lawmakers, to journalists, to higher education staff. Our hope is that the information is timely and useful, so we strive to keep it updated and to rethink pages and sections every year as we update to make sure that we're continuing to cover the important topics. Well, that's great. It sounds like the SOSA is a really comprehensive look at financial wellness and financial aid for higher education. Um, And recently, Um, financial aid and uh, higher education has it's it's been a little challenging um, just in this past year um, just due to the pandemic and how things have changed because of COVID Um, so has the pandemic impacted the findings uncovered in this year's SOSA compared to previous years? Yeah, this will be so interesting to see in the years to come. Uh, As a data nerd, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how the pandemic will impact various data points. 
Uh, most of the data that we use in SOSA have a fair amount of lag. These data come from the federal government or state government, and there's usually a, at least a year or two lag from the time of collection to the time of publication. So we won't see the impacts in data from those sources just yet, but there are a few things that we can already see. Um, we get unemployment rate data from the Bureau of Labor Services, and that has very little lag. So we're able to see unemployment rates by educational attainment for all of 2020. Um, in the SOSA, we created a chart that shows the unemployment rates for 2020 and for 2019 for each educational attainment level. And the, the 2020 rates are much higher than the 2019 rates across the board, but you can still see the same pattern that we always see with this data. The higher your level of education, the lower your unemployment rates. And how has the pandemic affected student loan repayment? So we've already been able to see some of the impacts of the pandemic on student loan delinquency rates. Uh, delinquencies have decreased due to some relief measures put in place by the CARES Act and some of the other legislation. Um, this relief essentially means that all loans are put into forbearance, meaning that most borrowers have not been required to make payments on their loans for about a year now. So therefore, for the most part, borrowers can't really be delinquent on their loans at the moment. So we're seeing those delinquency rates really just plummet. Um, those relief measures are supposed to end at the end of September. And so if there are no more extensions, borrowers will begin repayment again in October. Uh, we also included five new pages in our student aid policy section about some of the COVID-19 legislation related to higher education. Uh, we look at the uh, funding allocations by uh, school type in Texas and by Texas region. And I think in the next few years, when we update these pages, we'll be writing the words pandemic and COVID-19 over and over again to explain some of the weird things that we see in the data for any number of things like enrollment and student aid dollars. It will definitely be interesting to see what the lasting effects of the pandemic have on higher education in the years to come. Speaking of the next few years, how are Texas demographic shifts affecting the higher education landscape? Yeah, this is such an important question because it really touches on so many things and it impacts the economic future of our state. Texas became a minority majority state in 2005, meaning that the state's population is made up of less than 50% non-Hispanic whites. And the future population projections for Texas estimate that the Hispanic population in particular will continue to increase as a proportion of the overall population. By the year 2050, almost half of people under 25 years old are projected to be Hispanic in Texas. And this is important because we continue to see differences, gaps in educational access and success between different race and ethnicity groups throughout the educational pipeline. So what actions will need to be taken to address these educational gaps? The uh, Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board has a strategic plan in place to try to address these gaps and other higher education issues. Part of the plan calls for having 60% of the young adult population having some kind of higher education credential. And another part aims to have at least 550,000 students per year completing a credential. Reaching these goals will require many more students having access to higher education than we've typically seen. And some of the gaps between different racial and ethnic groups that we see in that educational pipeline are things like higher percentages of white adult population in Texas having a high school diploma, compared to African-Americans and Hispanics. Uh, white high school graduates enroll in college at higher rates um, the following fall compared to African-American and Hispanic graduates. And higher percentages of white college students graduated with a bachelor's degree within six years compared to African-American and Hispanic students. 
Um, so that we see gaps uh, really throughout the entire educational pipeline. Also, lower income students are less likely to enroll in and complete college. And this is true no matter what the student's race or ethnicity is, but we also know that African-American and Hispanic students in Texas are far more likely to be economically disadvantaged compared to white students. So given these historical trends and the forecasted demographic shifts, it will be more important than ever to close those gaps and make sure that all students have access to higher education and support to be able to complete a credential. Absolutely. You mentioned increasing enrollment rates in these key demographic groups would be important in the coming years. How are enrollment rates changing among high school graduates and prospective college students? Yeah, we're seeing some interesting trends over the last 15 years. Um, overall, the percentage of Texas high school graduates who enroll in college the following fall has been pretty stable over that time period at about 50%. But we've seen some specific trends when you look at those enrollment rates by race and ethnicity. The rates among African-American students have also been pretty stable, moving from 44% in 2005 to 46% in 2019. However, Hispanic students have seen a positive trend from 41% to 49%, while white students have moved from 57% down to 52%. So this means that the gap between Hispanic student enrollment and white student enrollment has shrunk from 16 percentage points in 2005 to three percentage points in 2019. Um, this was due to that positive trend from the Hispanic students and the negative trend from the white students. So it's good to see the gaps are closing, but ideally it happens with all students increasing their enrollment rates. So what can policymakers and higher ed practitioners do to support enrollment? Um, I think for policymakers and practitioners, it will just be important to continue to encourage all students to enroll in college after high school. Enrolling in college immediately following high school graduation is important because delaying post-secondary enrollment is a risk factor for eventually dropping out of college or never enrolling at all. And I think there's some things that schools and policymakers can do to help encourage students and their families, depending on what the issue is. For so many, the issue is high cost. Ensuring that student aid will be available if needed may help convince students and families that higher education is a viable option. And your last comment about the cost of higher education actually leads me to my next question. How has the price of higher education in Texas changed over the last 10 to 20 years? So it's probably not a surprise to hear this, but the price of higher education has increased. Between 2008 and 2018, the average tuition at public four-year universities in Texas increased 30%. And this was actually lower than the national average, which was 37% and much lower than the 69% increase seen in California and the 60% increase seen in Florida. But that doesn't necessarily mean that college is affordable in Texas. Average tuition and fees at a Texas public four-year university in 2017 would cost the typical Texas family 16% of their median household income. And that would certainly be higher for families with incomes below the median. So it's still a pretty good amount of a family's household income to be able to pay for college. So, what types of aid are students using to help pay for the rising cost of college? Yeah, this varies uh, quite a bit by school type, but overall, almost two-thirds of student aid in Texas comes from the federal government, 28% uh, from institutional sources and 7% from the state. Uh, that is pretty much what we see in the public four-year sector. The private sector is a little bit different. About half of aid at that sector comes from institutional sources and a little less than half from the federal government. 
And at community colleges, 90% of aid comes from the federal government. And while a majority of aid is in the form of grants, there is a lot of borrowing happening. 46% of aid at public four-year schools is in the form of loans and 41% at private four-year schools. But even in the community college sector, 30% of student aid dollars were in the form of loans. So that begs the question, are need-based sources of financial aid like the Pell Grant keeping up with the costs of going to college? Well, the short answer is no. State grant programs like the Texas Grant haven't been fully funded in years. So those programs have various eligibility criteria and application deadlines on top of the financial need requirement to try to spread out the aid or award it in ways that feel somewhat fair. And the federal Pell Grant hasn't kept up either. Decades ago, in the 60s and 70s, the Pell Grant covered most of the cost of college, uh, and it has steadily covered less and less over the years since then. In Texas, the average Pell Grant award to public four-year students covered only 19% of the average total cost of attendance for two semesters. And that was the same percentage covered in the community college sector as well. So that aid is, is just not stretching as far as it used to. And so for students with additional barriers to attaining a degree or students with additional challenges, maybe they have dependents at home or they have to take care of their family, uh, how are they managing to pay for school? Yeah, this can be a difficult situation. Students with dependents have to be have to financially support those dependents on top of paying for school. Uh, and these students certainly face more pulls on their time. It may be harder for them to find time to concentrate on their schoolwork, which can certainly be a barrier to degree completion. And costs can be higher as well. We can look at room and board budgets as an example. Most institutions set the room and board budget using an assumption that students will share housing. If students live alone, they'll usually go beyond their institution's budget. For students who have dependents, it may be difficult for them to have roommates, and they would likely need more space than just one person would. And also food costs will be higher. So some schools are able to offer childcare assistance to their students who have dependents, which is wonderful. But it may also be worth exploring the food and housing security of those students with dependents to see if they're struggling and need additional financial support. And um, going back to the trend, the upward trend of higher education costs over the years, um, you know, many times you hear about previous generations being able to pay for college by working part time or even just taking a summer job. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, clearly things have changed since those days. Um, but, you know, why is that? And, and how much would today's college student have to work to pay for their degree in the same ways that previous college students could? Yeah, this has changed really dramatically. In the 1960s and 70s, someone working at a minimum wage job 24 hours per week, every week of the year, could have fully paid for their cost of attendance for the year using just their earnings from that job. So it was certainly possible to work all year long to pay for school or maybe work full-time over summers or some kind of combination. And that low-wage job truly could pay for school pretty easily. In the 1980s, education costs began to climb and minimum wage increases occurred less frequently. So by 1989, someone would have had to work 39 hours per week. Uh, every week of the year at that minimum wage job to fully pay for school through that income. 
and college costs have continued to increase and minimum wage has been pretty stagnant. So the number of work hours needed have increased sharply since the year 2000. In our latest year um, in SOSA in 2018, 68 hours of work per week every week of the year at minimum wage would be needed to cover the average cost of attendance at a Texas public university for two semesters. And at community colleges, it would be 54 hours of work per week. And that kind of schedule is obviously pretty impossible, especially on top of attending schools. So it just really isn't possible anymore to work your way through school like people could decades ago. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Carla. This was really interesting. And we hope college leaders and policymakers who may be listening enjoyed these valuable insights. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. You can find more of Carla's work as well as the rest of Trellis Research's work on Twitter at, at Trellis Research or by visiting www.trelliscompany.org research. To check out the full SOSA report, visit www.trelliscompany.org slash SOSA-2021. We'll also drop a link to the report in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Love the show? Leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. Student Centricity is produced by Trellis Company, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation with the dual mission of helping student borrowers successfully repay their education loans and promoting access and success in higher education.